Thank you so much, Beth. I personally requested that song because that is right from the psalm that we are going to be opening this morning, Psalm 121. Would you turn with me there if you uh, have brought your Bibles? Wonderful. If not, there are some Bibles located in the seat in, seats in front of you. A good friend named uh, Dave, Pastor Dave, he's a number of years older than me and was uh, uh, influential in me deciding to pursue uh, the pastorate and ministry. And uh, I see Dave, he's a pastor's kid and he's got kind of that wisdom of a pastor's kid. And uh, we were connecting one day, this is a number of years ago, and for him, church was going really well family was going really well, relationships were going really well, yet he was struggling with something. And we were talking about that struggle. And here was his struggle. He said, Eric, I feel like I'm too comfortable in my faith. I feel like I, there's not enough risk element in my faith. I don't feel like I'm sacrificing enough. I don't feel like I'm seeking enough. I don't feel like I'm pressing in enough. Everything from family to ministry feels so safe. And my first thought was, what? That's what I desire. I that's what I long for, to everything to be calm and everything to be going good and, and God working in all these areas and me experiencing God's favor. But not Dave. Not Dave. There's this, this idea that, that God was calling him to something more that wasn't simply safe and okay and, and, and a very minimal level of risk. I think Dave was helping me to see a, a, a truth about the Christian faith. And that is, is that all of us, as we're called to this faith, a key part of the faith is this idea of pilgrimage, this idea of journey, this idea of adventure, that um, scripture says time and time again that this place, this world where you are, this is not your home. That there should be this ongoing longing in your heart, this, this holy dissatisfaction that God is inviting you into more, that the Father has more for you, that he's wooing you to live this life that is about journey, that has risk, that has sacrifice, that has adventure as part of that, that movement, that the Father is not wanting us to be all comfortable. And that, you know, the t-shirts, life is good, right? No, there's this invitation that he's saying, I don't want you to be too comfortable. I don't want you to be collecting moss in this really nice meadow that you've found to sit. No, I want you to be journeying with me. In fact, Abraham, way back in Abraham, he was that, that archetype for us where God calls him, and what's the first thing that he tells Abraham to do? He says, leave your family of origin. 
Leave where it's safe. Leave where it's comfortable. Go, cling to me, I'll be with you. We'll have this covenant, but go. Jesus was that example too. At one point in his ministry, he says, the son of man has no place to rest his head. There's no, there's not a comfortable, this is a journey. This is not our home. Let's move across that. The apostle Paul talked about the faith not as some nice places you, you, you find to look and sit down and, and, and drink some coffee. What's he picture it as? Running the race. So running the race, you're pressing in, you're pushing in. The apostle Peter put it like this. This is 1 Peter 2.11. Beloved, I use the King James because I like the, the words that they use. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners... Did you know you're sojourners? Or you're supposed to be. As sojourners and pilgrims. Did you know you were pilgrims? I thought those were only way back then. No. What's he saying? You who are journeying, you sort of abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul because those will get in the way of your journey. I like to picture it this way. That we're traveling deeper and deeper into the kingdom of God. That yes, it's one thing to step over the line to be outside of the kingdom, and Jesus says, entering the kingdom. And yet, that's not, we're not supposed to hang out on the border. That in one part, we're, we're meant to journey deeper and closer into the heart of the Father, growing in intimacy. Growing in faith, growing in knowledge and understanding. Friends, I think some of us come to this Palm Sunday and, and we feel a little cesspoolish. Can I say it like that? It's just this cesspool, we're just kind of hanging out. There's no running water. We're just kind of with the old thing. Some of us have been there for years. For years. And the Lord is saying, I, I don't want you to be cesspoolish. This isn't, uh, you know, check the box and do the things you've always done. Some of us need to, to press into the journey. Do something different. Read a book, a good Christian book from a different challenge, uh, from a different perspective that will challenge us. Enter into a, a course or a, a, a life group that's coming up. Maybe you're not all together comfortable with that. Great. Good. Press through that. Maybe there's some barriers. You've got kids and sports and activities and it would just be a high sacrifice to do the additional thing. Awesome sacrifice, press in. He's saying that I don't want you to be comfortable. The faith is about journeying with him. Now the psalm that we're going to read this morning, Psalm 121, comes from a group of psalms. There's 15 psalms that are called psalms or songs of Ascent. Do you see that? The, the start of Psalm 121, you see that it says, a song of ascent? 
And that grouping of Psalms is, is believed to be at the time of uh, Israel when they were a nation and they celebrated three uh, primary feasts that regardless of where they were living for those feasts, the, the feast of Passover, which is actually what Jesus was entering Jerusalem, yes, because he knew the cross was coming and resurrection, but it was the occasion of the Passover feast. So all the, the Jews from the known world, the children of God, were entering and going into Jerusalem. You had the Feast of Pentecost that would come in the early summer, that now we celebrate that with the, the giving empowerment of the Holy Spirit, and the Feast of Tabernacles. So... In, in the life of a, of a Jew, children of God, they would be living their day-to-day and they had a mentality of discipleship. That whether they were working, whether they were leading their family, whether they were serving, they were growing in the Lord. Their life was discipleship. And yet at least on three primary occasions, wherever they were, they would travel to Jerusalem. And Jerusalem was represented uh, um, as the highest point on the earth. That's why they would say they would ascend to, I don't know the actual altitude, probably not as high as Colorado Springs, but it was this picture of ascending. And why was Jerusalem so important? Because that was the manifest presence of God. And so they would be traveling and entering into Jerusalem. And it's these 15 psalms that's believed as they would walk and march to Jerusalem that this was their song, that they, they would sing. You know how Beth just sang that? They wouldn't be at the piano singing the song. They would be walking and they would be lifting up their hearts and their souls as they sang to God, songs of ascent. So let's read just one of those psalms of ascent, Psalm 121. The psalmist wrote, and imagine all the people of God entering or or traveling towards, ascending towards uh, Jerusalem, and singing together, their, their kids, their children, spouses, extended family, all that they're traveling, they begin a song and they sing. I lift my eyes up to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not let my foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Kind of a conversation going back and forth between the singers and the sojourners. The Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life, your soul. The Lord will watch over your coming and going 
both now and forevermore. Who knows how many times they would sing that particular psalm, probably repeating several times together back and forth. Do you think about the, the content of this song of ascent? Did you notice one word that was repeated again and again? Mm. Logan, you're rocking it. Yes, second cup of coffee for you. Yes, did you, you notice there's a watching, watching of the Lord. In fact, NIV translates it five times as watches. Actually, that's eight of the Hebrew, same Hebrew word. There's this repetition, this idea that God look to him because he, though he is the one true living God, his desire is to watch over your life. Whether it's during the day, he will not let that sun scorch you. Whatever dangers that you would experience on your journey of faith, he will watch over you. If something happens to you during the day, God's got it. The Father, you can trust him. The moon by night, if anything on your journey happens during the night, God, he's got you. Would you take comfort that he's got you? Now, one of the questions that the psalm raises, which is an interesting question, is an invitation for you sojourners, you travelers. When you hit trouble, when you're stressed out, when there's something at work that is just working you and you're, you're tense, when you've got this relationship and you've got this relational strife that, that you don't know how to handle, when you are in the middle of the night and you're wide awake because that stress is pressing you in and then you're stressed that you're not going to get enough sleep so you're not going to be good for work to the next day and then so that adds to your stress so you can't get to sleep more, right? Do you? Relate to that? Who do you look to? Where do you look to? Where do you turn your eyes? Where do you focus your heart and your soul? What do you reach out to to grasp and to hold on to? See, when we read that first line, I lift my eyes up to the mountains. Where does my help come from? I think I've always read that because I love um, looking to uh, mountains or sometimes oceans uh, and looking to the Lord that represents. So coming in, driving in this morning, I looked to the mountains and said, God, majesty, hallelujah. And I think that's a legitimate way to understand that first line. There's another way to understand that, that uh, some commentators would argue that when the psalmist is saying, are you looking to the mountains, he's talking about not looking to the Lord, but he's talking about the wrong places that we look. The, the, the places that we choose and replace the Lord with. During the writing of this psalm, Israel was struggling with a lot of pagan worship. Specifically, there was something called Asherah poles that they would create and they would worship. Um, and, and then there were shrines or altars for Baal. 
And oftentimes those Asherah poles and their sh those shrines and altars, they were in the high mountains. So even the children of God, the Israelites, they were struggling. Yes, they would do the temple worship and they would worship, but on occasion they'd sneak out. And there would be these shrines that were set up in the mountains. And just in case to have all their bases covered, yes, they worshiped Yahweh, which is the personal name of God that's used in the psalm. They would worship Yahweh. But at the same time, just to make sure, in case there was any time that he wasn't looking, they would also spend a little bit of time in the mountains worshiping other gods. And so a lot of commentators are saying, actually, the, the, the psalmist was saying, are you looking to the mountains where Baal and the Asherah poles and the other gods, is that where your help comes from? Even while you're journey, journal, uh, journeying to Jerusalem. And the psalmist is saying, do you know that the Lord says that's not okay? That's not okay that you have other gods, other things other people, other helps before me. I long to be at the center of your heart. You're at the center of my heart. I long to be at the center of your heart. Oftentimes the Lord depicts the worship or idolatry in our hearts as uh, adultery. And one of the famous stories in the uh, Old Testament is the prophet Hosea. And he takes a wife and she leaves him and she commits adultery. And then the Lord says to Hosea, the prophet, regarding his wife, he says this, go show you your love to your wife again. Though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Kind of a tough call as a prophet, right? She's out with other men. She's committing adultery. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes, part of a, a form of idolatry. And he's saying, don't, don't you get, I'm your creator, I'm your sustainer. You're at the center of my heart would you let me be at the center of your heart? And when you don't, and when you don't, I feel you're turning your back on me. But God, we're, we're traveling to Jerusalem. We're, we're good, right? I believe. Yeah, but what about this? When you, when you were in trouble, you didn't, you didn't turn to me. Friends, part of the journey of faith I am convinced is this ongoing idea of checking our soul, of checking our soul to see if there's another idol, another God, something else or someone else that has really nudged the Lord off the, the center of our heart and has taken that space that belongs only to him. If you think about modern day idols, think of it like this. There can be idols that are, are neutral things, right? Like um, wealth and fame are not necessarily evil in and of themselves, correct? But wealth and fame 
and other things like iPhones and the internet. Those aren't necessarily evil in and of themselves, though some would argue smartphones are. But no, 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 they're, they're neutral. They're saying, have you allowed your focus, your attention, your eyes, where are your eyes a lot of the day? I'm just going to leave that question for you. Where are your eyes? Now, idols can also be good things. Idols can be our children, can't they? Our children's happiness. Their, their, uh, their safety. Not that they're bad. In fact, you know, kids are good, right? Yes, family good. Uh, yeah, let's go with good. All right, I have three teenagers, so I'm a little tainted. But let's go with good, right? Can they become idols in my heart and soul as I journey? Yeah. How about spouses? Yeah, good things. There can be bad things as well. Drugs, alcohol, pornography, all those things that are inherently bad, we can turn our hearts and souls to them and be focused on those and become idols. I was trying to think of idols in terms of when we're in trouble, when we're stressed, when we're struggling, And I came upon this article that was written by a reporter named Lisa Miller a number of years ago. And the article was entitled, Listening to Xanax. (laughs) Listening to Xanax. She said, how Americans have learned to stop worrying about worry and pop its pills, Xanax, instead. She wasn't talking about clinical depression that can be a serious issue and sometimes Xanax and other things really, really um, are, are valid and take that. So I'm not saying that it's all bad, inherently evil. I'm saying there's a, a neutrality there. But she was talking about that low-grade anxiety of everyday life, what she calls functional anxiety. And she says, if the 90s were the decade of Prozac, the 2010s, They've become the era of Xanax. And when we have a difficulty, we pop a pill. And she was looking at society and saying, when you have an ache and pain, what do you do? Pop a pill. When you're struggling to sleep at night, what do you do? Pop a pill, right? When, when you're uh, dealing with maybe a stressful situation, you're not sure how to enter into it, what do you do? You pop a pill. Now again, what am I saying? Is like Xanax evil and you should never, and you're, I'm condemning you if you take it. No, that is not what I'm saying. I'm asking you to look at where do you turn to in times of struggle and difficulty? Not saying that medication is bad. Of course it's not bad. Is there a challenge that we're allowing these little idols in our lives to creep in where we're not turning our attention to the Lord? I had a physical last year, and family was encouraging me to get a physical. I hadn't had one in a number of years, and so I did all the blood work and the tests. And so a physician's assistant called me and said, By the way, your thyroid numbers are super low. So we need to get you on medication right away. 
I said, really? Okay, well, like, how long am I supposed to be on this medication? You know what the answer was? For the rest of your life. I said, wow, that's a really long time. I mean, I think it's a long time. I'm not sure, but I think it's a long time. And I said, well, is there any, like, kind of herbal substance that I don't, I'm not a huge fan of medication. Could I just, no, uh-uh, you can't do anything for thyroid. It's just medication or nothing. I said, but I'm not really experiencing any side effects for that. And I said, could we wait? And just thought I'd get a little gospel in there as, I believe in prayer. I, I'd like to at least pray about it for a time. So it took three months and uh, prayed about it. And then I went back and I got the blood work and they called back and said, you're good to go. I was like, what? Yeah, you're good. Your, your thyroid numbers are fine. Now, I didn't know whether to say, thank you, Jesus, or what? I was this close to being on medication for the rest of my life. What? I think that was a lesson to me to say, not that medication is bad. Not that I wouldn't have responded, right? Hear me what I'm saying. But when I'm facing difficulty, am I turning to the Lord first and foremost? Do I really believe that he's got me? Do I believe that he knows me? Do I believe that he cares about my physical health, my emotional health, that he cares about my relationship, that even though he's a great and awesome God, he knows me and he wants me to invite him. Isn't that Psalm? It's an invitation to say, would you invite the Lord into those moments of insecurity and doubt and struggle and stress and strain because he says, I've got you. I'll take care of you. That's what the psalmist is saying on that journey. As you face struggle, are you looking to the mountains, other things? No, don't do that. They are subpar compared to the Lord. There's nothing and no one like the Lord. That's our, your next fill in the blank there. I think the, the psalmist takes some times to say, do you know why the Lord is that right person? Is that right place to turn your eyes? Why? Because he never sleeps. He never slumbers. In fact, that's probably a, a reference to Baal again. Remember when Elijah was challenging the priests of Baal? And he was saying, hey, perhaps you need to yell louder because he might be sleeping. That was part of the priest. He's like, yell louder. He's like mocking them. Do you remember that story from a few years ago? And he's saying, did you know that Baal, he might sleep? You don't have to wake up to the Lord. You don't have to be like, hey, God, hey, I need some help over here. No. He's there. He is God. He never slumbers. He, you never have to yell louder, not to mention that he is your creator and sustainer. He's the one who knit you together in your mother's womb, and his heart is for you, and he loves you. No one, not Xanax, not Baal, nothing, no one will love you like 
the God of heaven and earth. And if you think about the the psalm in the Old Testament, how much more reason do we have to celebrate in the New Testament that Jesus Christ now is not only God, but he walked this earth and he knows our stresses and strains and difficulties. Hebrews 4.15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize. Don't think because God is God, he cannot empathize with your stress, with your strain, and with your difficulty. No, with our weakness. But we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. Jesus has faced what you are facing. He knows what it's like to be tempted by sin. He knows what it means to be disappointed by others in your life. He knows what it means to be overwhelmingly discouraged with circumstances. He knows what it means to be oppressed and even abused and physically compromised. You know, I take great comfort in the story of Lazarus. When Lazarus died and and Jesus came, but he was too late, but he was going to resurrect Lazarus physically. And the sisters come, Martha and Mary, and what the story says is Jesus knows full well what he's going to do. He's going to resurrect Lazarus, her brother, and yet Mary is weeping. And do you know what Jesus does? even though he's going to resurrect Lazarus, he knows it. He knows it all It turns out for the good. He knows that Mary and Martha are going to be celebrating really soon. You know what Jesus does? He weeps. He weeps with her. He enters into her pain. He loves her. You know, the The presence of the Lord I've been talking to you about the last couple of weeks and trying to recognize the presence of the Lord. Trying to recognize his presence in conversation or when I'm praying for someone in my day-to-day. And I've realized one thing, that oftentimes when I'm praying for someone, I start to feel their pain and that leads me in prayer for them. I realized that's the heart of the Father for that person. He's expressing it to me so that in in that small instance, humbly, I might be the the hand of Jesus that's resting on their shoulder or the, the words of Jesus that's expressing love and tenderness and compassion and empathy. The Father knows you. As you walk and journey on this faith, don't turn to all these other things, good, bad, neutral. Do we turn to him because he is the God who weeps for us, who enters in. He knows it's all going to turn out well, right? He knows we're going to get past this difficulty at work, this strain in relationship. He knows all that, and yet at the same time, 
He enters deeply into our pain and empathizes with our struggle. Now, there's one question that sometimes as you read Psalms, there's questions that it's a little bit dangerous to ask. And I think this Psalm has one of those questions. And that question is this. If you look at the verse 3, he will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. My question is this. Aren't there times when I feel like my foot has slipped? Aren't there times when I've seen really bad things happen to to really good people? And how do I how do I bring rectify these two things, bring them together? The when I see when 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 good people are, are struggling and stumbling, and yet it seems like the psalmist is saying, if you walk with the Lord, he won't let that happen. Reading the the book called A Lament for a Son by Nicholas Walter Storff, I think is how you say his last name. He's a Christian philosopher and he's a prolific writer. And he tells the story of his son, Eric, who was an avid mountain climber. And one day he got a call on a Sunday morning and... um, he had slipped from the mountain, his son, I think he was in his 20s, and he plummeted to his death. And he's wrestling with this. And in the midst of the lament for a son, his book, he just quotes verse three, he will not let your foot slip. And he doesn't resolve it. He just lets it sit there. And he refuses to just go to those simple platitudes and those those easy outs. He wants to honor Eric and mourn him fully. I said, how do you how do you rectify those those two things? And I have to say I don't fully understand how I do that. I'm going to give you a a few handles to to hold on to, but I don't want them to be false platitudes. I I want you to hear them in the midst of the mystery. Is that okay? Can I do that with you? So one is this, is the Lord says, I will not keep you from danger, but I will keep you in the midst of danger. In fact, that's how generations of Jews and Christians have understood that line, that Psalm 121, especially verse 3. In fact, Jesus reiterates that, says, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart I have overcome the world. So even that, Jesus is saying, I'm giving you peace, but not the peace that the world thinks of, that everything is good and right, and your foot never sleeps in that general sense. He's saying, I'm promising you whatever happens in this world. No one can take that peace from you. 
that I give you. Eugene Peterson, who wrote the book A Long Obedience in the Same Direction, he explains it this way. None of the things that happen to you, none of the troubles you encounter have any power to get between you and God. None of them have any power to dilute his grace in you. None of them have power to divert his will from you. When I think of it that way, that encourages me to want to risk more, to be on adventure, knowing that I can press in. And yes, there is trouble in this world. Yes, I have an enemy of the soul. Yes, I'm going to face difficulty and challenges, and sometime it's going to hurt. And yet the Lord will never allow any circumstance to separate me from his presence, to dilute the grace in my soul, to knock me off his plans, his purposes, his will for my life. Everything he sifts through his fingers. So let me ask this question. How do we look to the Lord? How do we keep him center as we journey? How do we press in and recognize those idols that have taken root in our lives? And I thought as we, for our final psalm before Easter, I'd make it come full circle and return to the idea of Jesus as our good shepherd. He says this, John 10, 14, 16. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. Incredible, incredible that intimacy that he invites us, his sheep, to have with him, just like that intimacy that he has with the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. That's what we're going to be celebrating in just a few days. I have other sheep that are not of the sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice. And there shall be one flock and one shepherd. He's talking about the Jews and the Gentile, but we get to know his voice as well. One thing, we get that intimacy with God. We get to press into that companionship. We get to invite him to lead us on a journey. If you're stagnant, if you're struggling, would you ask the Lord the journey he wants you on right now? We get to invite his companionship to journey with us and that we get to know him in intimacy. Just recently, I was struggling with a pretty high degree of discouragement. And uh, uh, I popped awake in the middle of the night because I had 
so many discouraging thoughts that were working in me. So I, I got out my pill and I took the, would you think less of me? Maybe after this message, right? But I, I was struggling. And there was anxiety and there was a churning and I was like, And so finally I just said, so Lord, what do you think? I, I don't get it. I don't understand. Help me. I, help me to see. What am I missing? And you know, there wasn't a stone tablet that dropped next to me. Good thing for my wife, right? But he simply said, Patience. I've got you on a journey. Keep doing what I've told you to do. Look to me. He didn't, he didn't resolve it. He, didn't, he just said, trust me in this. I've, I've got you, Eric. In the watches of the night. One last thing. reading a, another pastor I really like Timothy Keller and he preached a series through Psalms and he said I realized that as I preach through Psalms I don't have near the prayer life that scriptures specifically the Psalms is offering he said so the second half of my adult life he'd been a pastor for many many years he said I'm going to press in to a deeper and more in, intimate prayer life. That's how we journey. We begin to lift our souls to the Lord. We, we lift our eyes to Jesus, first and foremost. We trust him in the journey, to lead the journey, to be with us, and to meet him in the journey. Let's pray. So would you ask the Lord, what do you think? I think some of us have been in a rest area for a long, long time. For some of us, the Lord is inviting us on a journey of faith. He doesn't want us to be stagnant. If that's you, would you ask the Lord, Lord, what, what is the journey? What's the sacrifice? What do you want me to do today in this Easter time? For some of us, we are traveling. And yet our eyes are averted to other things and not the Lord. We've allowed some of those idols to creep in. We're focused on people or things, good, bad, or neutral. 
And we need to invite the Lord to the center of our hearts and souls. If that's you, would you just lay whatever is at the center and give it to him and invite him to be the primary lover of your soul. And then some of us have never realized that the Christian faith is so much more than right belief and right practice. And if that's you, if that's you, would you simply say, Father, I want more. I want more of you, more of your presence, more of your goodness in my life.